morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, April 11th, we are studying John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. In today's text, Jesus appears to his disciples in a locked room on the evening of Easter, and then he comes to them again in the same room one week later. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be here, Tim. Thank you. So we get started today. Pastor Heckman, give us some context. We're in the second half of John 20. What should we know as we prepare to look at this text? So we're looking at, uh, you know, the the big event, one, one of the big events, of course, with the, the death of Jesus just before this. We have the resurrection of Jesus, and we are coming in at the kind of midway point of chapter 20, and some pretty significant things have happened uh, even just before chapter 20. Um, Jesus says it is finished and the suffering of our Lord, the fulfillment of his substitutionary atonement for us is finished, but there's still something left to happen. He needs to fulfill that promise that, you know, he would be handed over uh, to the authorities and he would be um, crucified and die, but then he would rise in three days. So we are coming into this pivotal moment um, in history, of course, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's really the, the big event that precedes what we're going to speak about today. So Jesus rises from the dead on the morning of the first day of the week. And um, in our text, he, like you mentioned, he appears to the disciples the evening of that same day. So it, uh, it's really need to see Jesus doesn't waste any time in coming and appearing to the people and being present with them to show I'm alive. And I said I was going to rise on day number three, and here I am. I am who I said I am. Um, I'm not crazy. I'm not a liar. I really am the Son of God. Um, and just a few points about the text beforehand uh, that are, are just little things to keep in mind. Um, there's these first three witnesses that we see in John chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 10, and these witnesses all see an empty tomb. And there's a lot of historians who, you know, will acknowledge, well, Jesus was real, and he did some pretty significant things, but then he was killed, and um, he was put in a tomb, and his tomb is empty, but they uh, they don't believe that an empty tomb equals resurrection. Uh, the body of Jesus must be produced, whether dead or alive. So um, they knew he wasn't there, uh, but they didn't quite understand that he had to rise from the dead according to the scriptures. That's what verse 9 says, chapter 20, verse 9. Um, so this is the important thing to remember. An empty tomb uh, doesn't mean anything if there's no living Jesus, and they're going to see him in just a little bit. And then another interesting point, um, 
when you get to verses 11 through 18, the first resurrection appearance is to a woman. Uh, and that's incredibly significant uh, in terms of maybe solidifying the fact that this is, you know, this wouldn't be something that if, if you wanted it to be believable, this isn't how you would make a false story. You'd probably change the facts around a little bit um, because women were not uh, regarded as trustworthy in the first century. They weren't allowed to testify in Jewish courts. Their witness was not um, credible to a lot of people. So if you're trying to fabricate a resurrection story, this myth that's completely believable and um, makes a lot of sense, you probably would not have Mary Magdalene as the first person to see Jesus, which solidifies that, you know, the, the best explanation is this is just the way it happened. And the gospel writers took pains to give the accurate details, regardless of what people think with them would think of them. So it's just a neat little note leading into Jesus appearing then to the disciples. Um, and uh, just a, a really, really profound event that leads into what we see today. And then uh, verses tw uh, chapter 21, a lot of people call it the epilogue of John, where you kind of wrap things up, so to speak. And um, we see Jesus appearing to his disciples and once again after he's appeared to them in the upper room and he eats with them. And I think it's a neat point. I'm sure you'll talk about this with the next uh, pastor who records with you. But the fact that Jesus uh, eats something, he asks for food, shows that this wasn't a ghost. Um, the disciples, I think, actually thought at first he was a ghost when he appeared to them. But in the in this section after today, he appears again. Uh, just so hey, I'm I'm still here. It's really me, and I'm also not a, a ghost, a spirit. I'm. Uh, it's not a spiritual resurrection. It's actually a bodily resurrection, um, which of course um, foreshadows ours. Really, our you know Romans eight twenty three. We are looking for all creation to be redeemed, and that even includes the redemption of our bodies, as Paul says in Romans eight. So just a little neat note about the context of Jesus appearing um, after our text today. All right, so let's go ahead and take a look at the text for today. We're in John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's our text for today. That is John 20, verses 19 to 31. All right, Pastor Heckman, so we find ourselves at the outset of our text on Easter evening. The doors are locked where the disciples are for fear of the Jews, and Jesus comes and stands among them and says, Peace be with you. Take us into this opening scene. So the text opens and we see, uh, I think John makes it very clear that he wants us to hold these two themes in you know, comparison with each other. There's fear uh, without Christ and there's peace with Christ. Um, real peace comes from believing in and receiving the gifts of Jesus, especially when he's present, uh, as we see in this text. So um, they're fearful for the Jews, and this was likely... Um, the Jewish leaders sent by the Sanhedrin. Uh, we see back in chapter 1, verse 19, they sent a delegation to see, uh, basically investigate activities of unauthorized teachers, which is what they considered Jesus to be. Um, so if you throw in your lot with this guy, you're probably going to be in trouble. And the disciples are thinking, well, he's died, and uh, it, it seems as though he's not who we thought he was. And I don't know that the religious authorities are going to look too kindly on us now. So that would have been probably the primary reason they have the doors locked. And of course, Jesus shows up and we see the the giant stone couldn't keep him in the tomb and certainly no locked doors can keep the son of God out. Uh, and that's a neat thing to see. He just comes in and he shows up. And if you go back, uh, that's one of the striking things here. If you look at what happened during Holy Week, especially Maundy Thursday, um, and then Good Friday, all of Jesus' close followers that he's going to be addressing here and seeing for the first time since those days, they all deserted him in his hour of need. And even Peter openly denied that he even knew who Jesus was. So if you're wondering, what what do you think they expect here? Um, they're probably expecting to hear law, you know, an open rebuke. You, <laughs> you cowards, how could you do what you did to me? Uh, I needed you. And you, you abandoned me. But what does Jesus come? The, the first thing he says to them, peace be with you. And if you, if you recognize the, the peace be with you, uh, it's a traditional Hebrew greeting. And uh, it just really is trying to emphasize that the presence of Christ is what brings peace. Uh, he is not angry with them. He doesn't hold their sins against them. Uh, certainly he speaks with Peter about what happened later on, but he, that's to reinstate Peter. It's not to tear him down and, um, make him feel just like he's, he's worthless or anything. Um, so it would seem to be that Jesus, you know, if you go back to chapter 14, verse 27, and then also 16, verse 33, Jesus has these phrases about peace that he's really fulfilling now. Uh, 14 verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. And then if you flip forward to chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And here he is showing, I have indeed overcome sin, death, Satan, uh, hell, all these things that would strip you of your peace um 
worldly peace can't give you what I give you. Um, peace for the disciples was the presence of Jesus and his gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that they, you know, Jesus comes back. We'll talk about this in a moment, but they're still a little bit afraid um, because they still know being tied to Jesus is quite risky. Uh, he's still probably not very well thought of by the religious authorities. Uh, who knows what the, we don't really hear about what they say. Um, but Jesus is saying, uh, peace for you is not perfect comfort. It doesn't come in wealth or status. Um, doesn't come in safety or comfort in terms of, uh, what you can get from the world. It really just comes from having faith in me and being my, being my child, being a lamb in my flock. And that's the same thing for us, of course, because, um, you know, ask what, if you could have peace of mind now, how do you think you could achieve that? Uh, and a lot of people in our world, maybe even some Christians, of course, think it's, I, I need this certain amount of possessions. Uh, I need my bank account to have a certain number in it. I need these relationships and I need them to be healthy. I need my body to be functioning perfectly. I need to look good. I need to be popular. All these things come into the conversation. Uh, the disciples really didn't have any of these things here. Um, didn't have status, didn't have wealth, power, any of these things. But Jesus still says, peace be with you. Uh, And true peace comes through, as we see in Romans 5, uh, Paul says, we now have peace, we have been justified, and we have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So God justifies us. He gives us the gift of faith. Um, He takes the initiative. He works all these good things in our lives just as Jesus appears to the disciple and gives them peace. So um, we have true peace when we receive the sacrament, when we hear the word of God, when we are baptized, and uh, wherever we are gathered in the name of Jesus, he is with us. So uh, a really neat contrast that John has here between fear, you know, is, is you know, kind of moving away from Christ. Peace comes from having Christ. Hmm. Just as a, a, a challenge for for you who are listening, think through this the next time you're in the divine service and notice how many times you hear the word peace and how often peace is given in the divine service precisely because Jesus is there for you at that moment. I, I can think of, I think, <clears throat> like three off the top of my head, but there might be more. So a challenge, challenge for you who are listening, go to the divine service and notice how often peace is given to you still today because the risen Lord Jesus Christ comes to you. This is, I mean, Jesus says, peace be with you. What, three times in our text for today? Mm-hmm. He says that to us still in the divine service when he comes. So, so notice that next time and, and rejoice, receive that peace. Now, the disciples receive that peace here, and, and they, don't, they don't quite get it, I suppose, until Jesus lets them see something. So he shows them his hands and his side, Talk about that and then the disciples' reaction to seeing Jesus and realizing it's him. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to Luke 24, 37, uh, Luke records that. I think we mentioned this even in the introduction. Uh, The disciples thought that Jesus was a ghost. um, And he is demonstrating a couple things here. Um, I'm the same guy that you saw on the cross here. Uh, a few days ago. I'm not an imposter. I'm not a lookalike. You know, look at the wounds in me. I really did die. I'm that same guy. And I have a fully restored, resurrected body. And then the disciples, you know, they, it says they rejoiced. Um, they were glad when they saw the Lord. 
which really made me think of just going back a little further. Um, and this is such a, just a great reminder. Uh, re recognize, of course, the immediate context around a passage, but also be willing to look at a little bit of a broader context within the book that you're reading to see how do these things tie together? Um, how do they reinforce one another? So Jesus in John 16, verses 20 through 22, he, it reads, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And really Jesus the event to which he was referring back in John 16 is precisely this. The world rejoiced that the, the Lord of creation had died and been killed. Uh, there were many people shouting, may his blood be upon us and our children. They were happy to get rid of this guy. And of course, the disciples wept and lamented and they were sorrowful. Um, but now it is turned to joy because um, Jesus, when he said, I will see you again, he was referring, I'm going to rise from the dead just as he had been reinforcing with um, his passion predictions, as we call them, uh, his death and resurrection. So <clears throat> Jesus appears to them. They were sad, and now their joy won't be taken away. I think that's a, a really encouraging statement back in John 16. No one will take your joy from you. So you think, uh, how, how could this be so? Well, if a risen Jesus is the source of your joy, Paul says in Romans, uh, Romans, I believe it's chapter 6, Christ has been raised from the dead. Um, now he can never die again. So if Jesus can't die again, then that source of joy is eternal. Um, and that's true. And even if you look at Romans 8, we remember um, not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So people can't kill Jesus. They can kill us. But even then, our joy can't be taken because... Paul says to live as Christ and to die as gain. Um, so it's really kind of reorienting us to think about um, where, especially in the previous verse, where is true peace found and here where are true joys found. I, I was trying to find the collect. I know we have a collect that we pray that the Lord would direct us to where true joys are found. I can't remember the exact wording. Um, and that's really trying to reorient us to joy is found in Jesus, faith in Christ. Um, you see that you are a sinner and you hear the words, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's joy. Um, it's reading Paul's words, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or the promise, you know, even in, in Romans chapter 8, that even though we have uh, this, the, the creation was subjected to futility, um, but God is going to set it free from its bondage to corruption, and that includes us. So true joy, uh, it's not going to be as, as the world thinks it is, uh, going back to those sources of peace too. Uh, the world often confuses feelings of happiness and the things that give it to you with actual joy. Joy lasts. Joy is a gift from God, and joy is always tied uh, primarily to the Lord Jesus and his gifts for you. So that's why the disciples, they were glad, um, and they have this beautiful reaction to him. So I've got the Lutheran Service Builder app open on my computer, <laughs> and I got the, I, I found it for you. Oh, so this fantastic. Is the, Thank you. This is the collect 
for the fifth Sunday of Easter. O God, you make the minds of your faithful to be of one will. Grant that we may love what you have commanded and desire what you promise, that among the many changes of this world, our hearts may be fixed where true joys are found. Through Jesus Christ, amen. So there, there's the, the colic that you were thinking of, right? With the the, our, the thought that our hearts would be fixed mm-hmm. where true joys are found. Yep. And the way that that colic explicates that is it's when we love what God has commanded and we desire what he has promised so that no matter how this world changes, our hearts are fixed where those true joys are found. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Very good. So again, that's the the collect for the fifth Sunday of Easter coming up soon within our church here. So listen for those words and be reminded of this good news that Jesus has given. All right. So Pastor Heckman, Jesus has said, peace be with you. His disciples rejoice. Jesus repeats himself and he says, peace be with you. And then he sends his disciples and in sending them, he breathes on them and he tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. So we've got about five minutes here before our break. So we, there's probably a lot that we can talk about with these verses. Mm-hmm. Maybe just to get us started before we go to the break, what exactly is Jesus doing here? So he is sending them, obviously. Uh, and this is actually a reference back to, oh man. Uh, he, he, in his high priestly prayer back in John 16 and, and 17 and talking um, about what, what's happening now he prays to the father just as you have sent me so i will send them into the world um this is part of that sending where jesus is um it's similar to the great commission before his ascension but it's a completely different thing this is not john's unique version of what matthew recorded in matthew 28 this is a unique sending of jesus um, for the disciples um and some would argue, well, okay, what were they sent to do? Um, some say, well, they're just kind of Jesus replacements doing literally the same thing. So they're going to miraculously heal, help the needy, preach the gospel to the poor, etc. cetera. Um, others argue that you have to be very rigid and narrow with the context of the words of Jesus, which is you're going to go, you know, receive the Holy Spirit to, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Um, and so some people try, I, th- I think it's to make a false choice here between uh, either they go do this one thing where they're healing people or the other thing where they're preaching. Um, I think it's both because you're not going to isolate this from the rest of what they were given to do. Um, God sends them to proclaim Christ crucified, proclaim his forgiveness. Um, We see this in the book of Acts, that they weren't just going around forgiving sins. That was the primary role of these apostles, but they were also um, preaching, baptizing, all these things, giving his gifts of word and sacrament, um, and calling all people to repentance. Um, So they've been sent to do the work of Christ in his stead and by his command, and primarily here what they're doing we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but um, they're sent with this authority to forgive sins um, and withhold forgiveness. Um, do you want me to get into that before the break? Do we have another minute or do we need to? Yeah, we got about three minutes here. Go ahead. Okay. So there's a question that's come up, uh, especially among evangelical Christians who um, have, a, have a great deal of difficulty understanding how can a pastor or a lay person forgive sins. And the, the reasoning is only God can forgive sins, right? Who are 
you as this pastor up in front speaking this absolution, I forgive you your sins. Uh, so the misconception is um, this pastor, you know, especially when, when LCMS pastors stand and at the start of the divine service, uh, what's one of the first things we do is confession and absolution, where we confess that we are sinful, uh, we have committed sins, we have violated the law of God, and we are in need of God's grace. So then the pastor stands up there and proclaims uh, upon this your confession, I forgive you your sins in, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and so I think the misperception is he's doing it uh, with his own power or his own authority. Like he's kind of gone rogue and he's doing it apart from God. Um, and so a great verse, if, if anyone ever asks, how, why does a pastor, even a lay person, um, with our teaching, the priesthood of all believers, how can a lay person forgive sins? Well, it's not the pastor forgiving sins. It's not the person forgiving sins on their own authority. It's Jesus authorizing, expressly authorizing his people in these verses to give forgiveness from him. We are just the instruments who forgive um, to the repentant sinner and withhold it from those who don't repent. So truly, yes, Jesus alone forgives sins, but he has chosen. We always say God works through means. Uh, God accomplishes things in this world through his people. And pastors are those people who are called to publicly give this forgiveness in the divine service. Um, it's the office of the pastor where God has said they give it to people when we are in a worship setting. But even the Christian, you know, if, you're, um, if your child, uh, not that I've had this uh, experience recently necessarily, but if your child kicks you or something, um, <laughs> and, uh, they, and you say, was that good? Uh, no. Uh, what do you think you need to ask for? And they say, well, would you please forgive me? The Christian is authorized to proclaim that that child is forgiven. Um, and that, again, is because the Lord Jesus has established things that way to give this absolution um, to one another. And it's really, if you think about it, um, a, a great analogy is the, it's like the person who's standing trial. Um, imagine they're standing trial, but they're in prison. That's, that would be the sinner, us. And then the judge in the courtroom, that's God, gives the innocent verdict due to the defendant, Jesus, who gives the perfect defense of his death and resurrection for us. But now, uh, how does that good news of innocence get to the person in the prison, the sinners? Uh, well, the, the judge, God, sends what you might call the clerk, uh, the pastor, uh, or the lay person to deliver the good news to the prisoner. Your sins are forgiven. And that's that's just how God has established it. Um, he works through people, through words, bread and wine, water, along with his word. Um, and we also need to, to show here, too, just before we wrap up for the break, um, this is a really important thing to keep in mind for church discipline. Uh, Jesus says it quite clearly here. If there are unrepentant sinners, you don't give them forgiveness because uh, forgiveness is for those who know they need it. And if they're denying that, that's something where you have to try to win back the erring brother, not, you know, I'm going to withhold forgiveness because you're driving me crazy, but it's, I don't want to give this to you because you don't actually think you need it. I want you to see your sin and actually desire the gift of forgiveness before it's given out by God. So another just important consideration there. We're going to keep looking at this text from John 20. On the other side of the break, you're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Joel Heckman this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. 
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, April 11th. We're studying John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31 with Pastor Joel Heckman. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, prior to the break, you were talking about verses 22 and 23 especially. And in the just to, to kind of round out that discussion, that those verses come up in our catechism under the office of the keys. And this is, I've always found this just a very helpful way of thinking about those verses. So it, the question is, what is the office of the keys? The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. So that's what the office of the keys is. As you said, it is Christ's authority he gives to his church. Another question in the catechism says, what do you believe according to these words? I believe that when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, so the the called ministers, the pastors of the church, exercise this authority publicly for the church, when they do that, what's the, what's the confidence that we have? Their action, according to Christ's command, is just as valid and certain, even in heaven, as if Christ our dear Lord dealt with us himself. So we should take great confidence and comfort from these words to know that when our pastor declares that he says, I forgive you, that is not his forgiveness that we receive, but it is God's forgiveness. So these are these are words of great comfort to mm-hmm. us. Uh, we should cling tightly to them. And, and when we get those questions, uh, turn to this text and, and show just the comfort that our Lord Jesus gives. Now, one, one question that may come up, Pastor Heckman, is Jesus breathes on his disciples. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. How does this compare to, to what happens in on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Yeah, so a lot of people have been a little confused by this uh, because it seems like it's almost a sort of second uh, Pentecost and John is sort of maybe ignoring what happens in Acts chapter 2 or he's contradicting it. Uh, I don't think that's happening at all. Uh, you you could say this is kind of an initial Pentecost, so to speak, because, I mean, you can just, some basic things you can say about the text and that's really what you want to do is stick to what is here. Uh, Jesus clearly gives the Spirit because he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So we we can't deny that he's giving the Holy Spirit in a unique way here. Um, in this immediate context, why did he give the Spirit? Well, the, the words around it, of course, there could be other things that he didn't say, but we take the words that he has said. Um, it's given in order for the disciples to forgive and withhold forgiveness. Um, so this charge from Jesus. And then you can still acknowledge, too, that there is also a second giving of the Spirit or a separate giving of the Spirit, you might say, in Acts chapter 2, in order for the disciples to be able to proclaim the gospel in various languages. Um, so it's not as though like b- before these things there was no Spirit because you know the Spirit of God is the one who works faith in us, and that's certainly present with all the Old Testament people. Um, but this is a unique giving of the Spirit. Uh, that is certainly distinct from Acts chapter 2, um, but it doesn't contradict it. 
Jesus is giving it for a, a particular purpose here and a particular purpose in Acts chapter 2. And certainly he gives the Spirit um, in a unique way every time, say, someone is baptized um, or you know anything else where the Scriptures testify that the Lord gives the gift of this helper. Um, so that, I mean, you could say a, a great deal more. The co- Some of the commentaries I referenced just have all kinds of uh, ideas about, well, it must be symbolic or it must be this uh, or that. And it's just caused a lot of confusion. But I think sticking to those three and just initial points is going to help us sort out what's actually going on here. And as with any text, you just look at what's going on with the details around it. So John tells us then, after he finishes those words of Jesus, that Thomas, who is one of the twelve, he wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. And when the others tell him, hey, Thomas, this is what's happened. We've seen the Lord. Thomas says, unless I see, I won't believe. We often call this episode Doubting Thomas. Take us into what's going on here with Thomas. Yeah, and there there really is a lot to unpack. So I just want to go through this little just bit by bit. So first Thomas comes and I, I've always wondered why wasn't he with the initial 11 or sorry, the initial 10 there. Um, he wasn't at the first appearance of Jesus. I'm not sure. It's an interesting question, but again, we just don't have anything from the text. Uh, we have no idea, but um, he comes in and he hears what Jesus did and said, but the testimony of the disciples just isn't enough. He needs this um, visible proof. He might say for Thomas, seeing is believing, um, that phrase we know pretty well. And it's, it's a relatable difficulty. We hear that a lot uh, today. I just want proof of so-and-so, especially when we talk about the Lord Jesus. You know, Give me proof that he did this or that or that he's real. And we, we can't do that in the same way that the disciples were able to for Thomas or that Jesus did for Thomas, so to speak. Um, we have fantastic evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, but it really comes down to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. So there is certainly um, a difference here because Thomas actually does see. Uh, but you, you know, when people say, I want proof, uh, you, the question is, what would be enough proof for you? Um, do you really want proof or do you just not really want to believe? And that's kind of an excuse not to because your your five senses aren't for some reason engaged the way you want them to. So so Thomas walks in, he has this this unbelief, this doubt in the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. We can relate a little bit. But then we come into um Thomas's words his, themselves. Uh so it's we hear a lot about doubting Thomas. Um I think it might be a little bit more accurate to say unbelieving Thomas. Now that's not to to say, and we, we had a good discussion on this, um, it's condemning unbelief. He says, I will never believe, and he's still a disciple of Jesus, but we might maybe compare this to the father of the, the son who I believe is possessed by a demon in Mark 9, 24. Uh, I believe, please help my unbelief. And so we can see there are examples where um, the Lord graciously allows us to um, struggle with unbelief or even you might just say doubts again that that thomas has um in your faith while having that faith because i think you pointed you had this phrase tim faith is faith whether it's hanging on by a thread or a a steel chain um trusting um in jesus is faith uh, no matter how strong it is and i think that's probably closer to what 
we have here with Thomas. Um, you remember back in uh, when Jesus was going to see Lazarus, um, Thomas is the one who says, let's go so we can die with him. So he does have courage. He's willing to follow Jesus, but I think he's still so shaken by the death of Jesus and still unsure of what to think about it because he really did trust, hey, this is the guy that is the promised Messiah. Um, and so it, it all comes down to, is Jesus really alive? That's the central claim of Christianity. Everything hinges on this. Um, some people, uh, I, I know uh, Pastor uh, Tom Zelt out in California has a book called the, um, oh, what is it, the Fulcrum or something of that sort where everything hinges on this. If, if you lose this, you lose everything. So this is incredibly important. And Jesus wants to take great pains to demonstrate even to Thomas, like th this, this is real. Um, so then uh, Jesus comes and he greets the disciples once again with, again, peace be with you. The doors are locked again. They're still a little bit scared, but Thomas is with them this time. Um, and so Jesus shows him the wounds, just like he showed the other disciples. And stop unbelieving and uh, believe is what he says. I think the translation in the ESV says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And um, some more really literal translations will have it. Um, do not be an unbeliever, but a believer. Um, you might extend that to say an unbeliever, but a believer in the resurrection. Um, and then we see this, <clears throat> this wonderful confession of faith where moved by the Holy Spirit, of course, we see no one no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so what does Thomas say? Jesus is Lord, essentially. My Lord and my God. Um, he is seen and believed. And it's just another strange thing to think about. You know, did he stick his finger in the hole? And, you know, what does he feel when he... <laughs> when he sticks his finger in the, the hole of Jesus' hand and slips his hand in his side. And, you know, it doesn't actually say that he did that. Um, but if you, it's just kind of one of those things you think about, what would that be like? But regardless, he saw them, he believed. And it's interesting because you get to this point in the text and you might think, man, I wish I could have been there. Um, I wish I could have been one of those people that got to see Jesus, one of, you know, among the 500 plus people to whom Jesus appeared after the resurrection. Uh, so some people might envy that, but interestingly, Jesus says he actually sees things differently about people who have seen him and believe and people who have not seen him and believe. So here he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And truly, this would be, you know, depending on the date of the writing of the Gospel of John, you know, sometime mid to late first century, um, Jesus would have been referring to many of John's initial readers. But then even after that, just the vast majority of God's people throughout history, excluding these people who have actually gotten to see Jesus. Um, the people of the Old Testament never saw him. Um, they trusted that he was coming. We haven't seen him. Uh, we trust that he has come and will come again. And so interestingly, we might look upon the disciples with some jealousy, like, man, you lucky people, you got to see Jesus. Uh, but then we remember Jesus' words. Um, we have been blessed to believe in Jesus without seeing him. Um, and and really, you, it makes you think about, well, we haven't seen him, but we're going to see him. Uh, we didn't get to see him when Thomas and the disciples did, but whenever Jesus returns as he has promised, um, 
he is uh, he is going to appear to us just as he did to the disciples. We'll see his wounds. He'll still have his wounds. He has those for eternity. Um, but we're going to see him risen just as the disciples did. And this is this is a great thing. And I, I want to just take a moment to point out how Jesus uses the word blessed here. Um, usually people say I'm blessed when they have their lives going quite well, when they have material possessions. And um, there is certainly no question that Jesus does bless us with good things and every good thing comes from above. But think back to the Beatitudes and even just this verse here, what reorients us to knowing what it actually means to be blessed. And if you look at those, it, to be blessed is to be persecuted for righteousness sake to be poor in spirit, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then also in this text to believe Jesus, believe in Jesus without seeing him. And you might ask, okay, pastor, well, why is that a blessed thing? Wouldn't it be better to see Jesus? Well, certainly we look forward to that. But I think Jesus says we're blessed here because it means we have the helper, the Holy Spirit. And by believing we have life in his name, this actually goes we're going to see in the last couple verses here. Um, so that, that I believe is why we're blessed because we have the spirit of God just as they did. And we, um, are still believers, even without having seen Jesus. And we know that we will still be blessed with being with Jesus in eternity, uh, when we get to see him, when he comes back. And then just the one last thing I want to focus on before we finish up, uh, with these last couple of verses, um, just thinking back even to you know the the whole phrase doubting thomas uh, i think it's really important to ask where is the place for doubt in the life of a christian um and again we want to make the point that faith is faith if you believe that jesus is lord that he has risen from the dead and saved you from your sins with no work on your own behalf um, it's all jesus that's faith whether it's weak or strong um and the Lord Jesus allows for us to have the doubts that the Father or Thomas had, um, granting he granted them stronger faith. And and really, you got to be careful with this too. You don't want to encourage doubt. Doubt is not a good place to be. It's a very uncomfortable place to be. Uh, you don't want to say, "Oh, it's great that you're doubting your faith." You know, that's I don't think anyone considers that a, a joyful thing. Um, but on the other hand, you should never um, silence these questions about Jesus and the Christian faith because the Lord very often uses that to uh, create a deeper faith uh, that's been solidified by, I had these doubts, I have these questions, and when I sought the scriptures, when I looked to other Christians, when I looked to the witness of the church and of history, and when I went to the Lord in prayer, the Lord strengthened my faith. Um and there's certainly a place to question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Does God really exist? Um, is there really a heaven and a hell? All these just incredibly important questions. You know, if someone comes to us with those doubts, um, we should be patient and graciously hear them and, and through the help of all of God's people, try to lead them to a place where they have stronger faith in Jesus. And if we have those doubts ourselves, don't be afraid to ask those questions to your pastor to your teachers, to your trusted, faithful Christian brothers and sisters, um, and to the resources to which they direct you. Um, and that's just a, an important reminder as we, as we remember doubting Thomas, um, that the Lord Jesus allows for that, but he always encourages us to seek where he has been revealed, uh, where he's revealed himself, and try to garner um, stronger faith from those resources he's given us. 
right? We wouldn't want to pretend that the questions aren't there, but rather ask the questions to the one who can answer them, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he does answer those questions in his word and calls us to faith in him. Just one thing that I do think is is a helpful reminder. As Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is a wonderful comfort to us. But he's not saying that those who have seen and have believed He's not saying that they're not blessed. They too are blessed by that gift of faith. They simply came about it after having seen and then hearing the word proclaimed. And that's you know that's where John's going to drive us next is he's going to point to the importance of the proclamation of the word, which is how anyone comes to faith. But I I do I just think it's important for us to keep in mind that we should rejoice in the fact that these people who were reading about that they did in fact see these things. I'm glad Thomas got to see mm-hmm. because that that lens, I mean, then we know we have the eyewitness testimony. Right. And in fact, John's going to make that point in his first epistle, which is what we're going to study after we finish this gospel. It's coming up at the end of this week on the, the Friday of this week. That's when mm-hmm. we're going to start first John. And he's going to make that point that these are things that we have in fact seen as he speaks about himself and the other apostles. So we don't want to minimize the importance of that eyewitness testimony. Mm. They they are blessed for having seen and believed, but so are you, dear Christian, who have not seen and yet have believed. And, and perhaps even in a, in a different and better way that you're, you're talking about how the whole gospel of John provides context. Jesus back in John 16, I think it was, said to his disciples, you know, it's to my advantage or to your advantage that I go away is what he told them. Mm-hmm. Same is true for us. So we have that advantage of believing even apart from sight because we've heard the word of God. So I, I think that's a helpful point, lest we look too poorly upon dear Thomas. <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe maybe we should also call him not only doubting or disbelieving, but also believing and confessing Thomas mm-hmm. because he does make that fantastic confession of faith in this text, my Lord and my God, and and truly that is who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. So it's a fantastic text we've got again, uh, Pastor Heckman. So let's take those last couple of verses here. We've got about seven minutes on the morning. John 20, verses 30 through 31. In, in some respects, this is a climax to the gospel where John gets to his point. This is why he's writing. These are such key words. Help us to, to see how John wraps this section up. Mm-hmm. So he begins by saying, um, something really interesting. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So the first question you probably are wondering is, okay, well, what other miracles did Jesus do? Uh, which is really interesting to think about, especially when you consider what you do see and don't see in the gospel texts. They they make choices about which stories to record and which ones not to record. And of course, there's a lot of um, you know, there's, there's some differences between not only which stories are reported, but just, you know, how the details are reported, which of course isn't a contradiction. It's just, I'm coming at this from a different perspective, telling you about the same event. Um, but it also, it's a great reminder that we don't need every single tidbit of info about Jesus to know who he is. Some things we just don't get to know, and that's fine. It's really neat to think about, well, we have so few stories of when Jesus was a child growing up. You know, we skip from the birth to Jesus in the temple all the way to, you know, the beginning of his public ministry. And there's so many things that we don't know about him. And it's it's kind of neat to think about, you know, what other amazing things did the Lord Jesus do and say? But it's a great reminder. We have everything we need about Jesus. God chose to 
in the scriptures reveal his son in four gospel accounts. And you wonder why wasn't it two or six or 20 or whatnot, or just one. Um, and God, it's the, the simple answer is God saw fit that there would be four accounts of it. And God saw fit that the events recorded are the ones that are sufficient for faith in Christ. That's how we, we talk about the sufficiency of scriptures. God has given us everything in his word to have faith in Christ. It's not like we have to add something uh, or fill in any gaps. You know, we, we can fill in, you know, certain historical things with other historical documents. But um, I think that's maybe part of what John is getting at here. Um, he, there's a lot of other things he did, but you don't need to know about them because you have everything you need right here. And then he gets to this beautiful, beautiful phrase. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we see the entire purpose of the gospel stated in this one phrase. Uh, if you had to ask, why is John writing the things he did? Um, he takes a little while to get to it. He takes about 20, ch I mean, you could probably guess the purpose of it from the moment that he has his little prologue about the word became flesh, like, oh, this is about Jesus. Uh, but he says it quite clearly here. We, these are written in order that this, this purpose clause, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Um, so we'd say, what does he mean there? Well, Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one of God. He is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. Um, and then he is not just an ordinary man. He's not just this guy who came along, had a lot of, you know, neat phrases and did a lot of good things for people, but he was just kind of a special person and nothing more. No, this is the son of God. He's been vindicated in his claims by his resurrection. Um, his tomb is empty and that's not because he rotted or, you know, and, and withered away or someone stole him and hit him somewhere else. It, he really did rise from the dead. Um, and that's the whole purpose of this gospel is to reveal that this is the son of God because he claimed it and he backed it up with his death and resurrection and his miracles and all these things about him. Um, and the last thing that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's not just, we believe it's not just sort of this intellectual ascent. Like, okay, I, I get that Jesus died and then his tomb was empty, which, you know, with the evidence we have, the best conclusion is that he rose from the dead. It's not just information, it's saving information. We have life through his name. It's the saving proclamation of the gospel, where what is the gospel? I mean, a lot of people say it's from this very verse in the nutshell, it's God loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And that's backed up here. Uh, we have life in the name of Jesus um, through all of his work and faith in that. Um, and I, I think one more thing really to hammer home here, um, the entire purpose of John is to cause us to believe that, you know, the spirit takes the word and creates faith within us through this testimony of John. But that's really the entire point of the whole scriptures, if you realize what it's all kind of getting at. Uh, the whole whole Bible is either anticipating Christ with the Old Testament and all the prophecies and uh, the law of Moses that, um, you know, portrayed the, the sacrifices and the, the scapegoat and all these things with the tabernacle and the temple. All of them are prefiguring Christ. And then the prophets are saying there's a Messiah that's going to come along. The Old Testament is about Jesus, even though we don't ever see that name. It's about the Messiah 
in Genesis 3.15, keeping that promise. And then the New Testament, um, that all reveals Jesus and points back to him. Um, and so this is what we'd call a Christological reading of the Bible, which basically just means it is all about Jesus. He's the central figure. Certainly you don't have his name in every verse, um, but truly every single book of the Bible, uh, if you don't read it with the lens of Jesus, you're not reading it faithfully. Uh, you're missing something essential, critical. You cannot take him out of the equation and completely understand what's going on. Um, and so our response is really just gladness and praise similar to the disciples here. We have um, life in the in the, the name of Jesus. We have been baptized into his death and resurrection. He really is the Christ, the Son of God, and we believe in him and have life. And so it's such a great way to rejoice this Easter, this Lenten and Easter season as we've been moving from the cross of Christ, from his suffering uh, to his three-day rest in the tomb and then his resurrection. Um, reading these two verses is just a great way to think about it. Um, we have received this testimony from the Lord. It is true. Um, it has been seen by others and handed down to us. And just we thank and God be praised for revealing himself to us in these words of John and in all the words of scriptures. Pastor Joel Heckman is pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. Pastor Heckman, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks so much, Tim. It's great to be here. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John or one of the epistles of St. John, as I mentioned earlier in the program, we will be moving into the epistles of St. John after we finish the gospel. If you've got a question about those, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.